The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been looking um, at this path that the Buddha taught, and just generally being reflective these last few weeks and probably for a few more weeks, maybe even a month and a half, couple months, just really reflecting on what our own experience of spiritual path has been. And, uh, you know, so much of our programming as a human being is wanting to find the path. And you see it shifts our orientation. We're looking around wondering who knows the answer, you know, who is the way, who should I trust. And the way the Buddha sets this up is really about learning how to become independent in terms of finding our way. And the best that our spiritual friends or spiritual teachers can do is model their own walking of the path. And maybe, hopefully you noticed, um, one of our longtime community members and leaders, um, Cecilia Schiller, just so happens to be a wonderful artist and woodcutter, wood carver, and she made the beautiful sign. Maybe you saw it, and it's kind of our main graphic. But it's a very traditional image in early Buddhism, this lineage that Kamagran is part of. And so the whole teaching, this person that lived 2,500 years ago, you know, these statues that came later as that culture had to compete with the Greeks and they were really into their statues. And so Buddhist culture there in northern India and other places, you know, had to look like the Greeks. And so they came up with their statues too. But but the more traditional image, of one of them at least, where there were two main ones, one or three main ones, but the ones we still use today are is the Dharma wheel because the Buddha, in articulating what happened to him and modeling his own ability to be a human being, be engaged in the world, and free, free of greed, uh, habit energy of greed, anger and delusion, he sets something in motion. So the wheel was one image that was used, the Dharma wheel, because it had like, um, like a virus, you know, Somebody models that freedom, it inspires other people. What is that? How is that person living? You know, what are they doing? Can I do that? Can I experience that ease of well-being, that natural love, that skillfulness too? And then it spreads. So that was one image. And the image that we use is the footprints, right? And this idea that somebody's walked this. If somebody can do it, I can do it. And another image the Buddha used in one of his Dharma talks is of a mother cow fording a river, getting across. And then the calves, of course, don't want to cross it. They're smaller. So what does the mother do? It's that lowing, right? That, I think that's a word they use for the mother cow, you know, calling out to its offspring. You can do it. Come along. You're not going to be safe on that side. you got to do it. I did it. You can do it. And so that's sort of the idea of the teachings. It's really the whole early Buddhist system. It's not this guru, this 
you know, someone, their transmission will kind of be under the magical umbrella of our teacher and that the Buddha or whoever is going to somehow clear the way, clear away the obstacles for us and then we'll be saved. That's not how it is in early Buddhism. There are human beings before us, I think countless, but a lot of human beings, all kinds of different sort of cultural backgrounds, the wealthy folks, the impoverished folks, the privileged people, the not the oppressed people who stumbled upon one, one way or another these teachings, had enough wherewithal, enough space in their life to learn what needed to be learned, to sort of look back inward toward their own mind and heart and see what they needed to see and could live with, you know, uncover that freedom, that capacity to be unafraid, to be um, to sort of abandon that deep tendency to be attached, to be identified, to be clinging, holding tight as they live their lives. And so we're in that lineage, right? These are, <coughs> this image of footprints is like <coughs> human beings have done this. As hard as it is, as hard as it is for us to even imagine being me without attachment, you know, having my relationships in the way that I do, having my personality, having this body, this, you know, location and culture, and not being burdened by attachment, by fear, by being attached to desire. I mean, it seems like, whoa, hard to even hold that in our imagination, that possibility. So this work that we're doing of reflecting on path is we're hearing these teachings of what other people have, you know, the path they've walked, the fruits of that path, of what has arisen in their lives and what they share about that. It's, and then we check it out in our own life. Is this true for me? How might this be true for me? And if you haven't been coming the last few weeks, I talked about the first, one of the first steps, at least as the Buddha articulated it, is this so-called, in our tradition, mundane, wise view, where we wake up, in a sense, as a moral being, and we realize it matters. It matters how I'm living my life. So in other words... All the little and big ways I pretend that it doesn't matter stop making as much sense to me. I start to catch more and more how I justify being oblivious, how I justify thinking that I already know, you know, like, oh, it's okay what I'm doing. And now all of a sudden I'm curious. I know it matters, so now I'm curious, how does it matter? Meaning, okay, I'm showing up like this in this moment, what am I setting in motion for myself and for those around me? Oh, in this moment, I'm a little stingy. In this moment, I'm a little controlling. In this moment, I'm really generous. This moment, I'm really forgiving. This moment, kind. This moment, a lot of fear. This moment, really thinking, if only, then I'll be happy. Right? These are kind of ordinary mind states that we have, right? Now the question is, when that mind state is active, what am I laying down? What impression is getting laid down in this heart? So that then in the next moment, and 
the succeeding, succeeding moments, oh, this is the heart that has this impression from being greedy or being generous in the previous moment. So we're starting to realize that, like it or not, every moment matters. Every moment that we're relating. This is the Buddha's teaching on karma. Most often misunderstood, you know, because generally we interpret the Buddha's, you know, the superficial sense. Karma is that, you know, there's some, you know, moral overlord of watching us, keeping score, basically. Oh, you did something good, you did something bad. But it's really this much more earthy, like we are this mind stream, this heart stream, the, what's moving forward moment to moment is, in a sense, affected by what was laid down previously. So the way I'm showing up in this moment is affected how I was relating previously today and, and before. So, how, so th- you might think, oh my God, I'm screwed because of what I've laid down. But it's really meant to be empowering because no matter how much debris we've picked up, heaviness we've picked up, fear, greed, anger, whatever we've picked up, in this moment, feeling, being present, I have this possibility of relating to this right now in a beautiful, liberating, healing, generous, kind way. There's nothing actually that can prevent any human being in any particular karmic situation, there's nothing actually in the way of a human being laying down something wholesome, something that's in the direction of release, in the direction of healing, in the direction of being, living in a more light, easeful way. Just in the same way, there's nothing ever in the way of us laying down heavy karma, more difficult future, right? So what does that teaching, just in a pragmatic sense, it's not about it being true or right. The more useful question is, is that a skillful way for me to be holding or imagining my existential situation? That it matters and that um, it matters in the sense that I'm capable of setting emotion hell for myself and for others probably, and I'm capable of setting emotion ease and release and awakening or something really beautiful for myself. Because if I operate with that view, you you see it's gonna, what is it gonna reinforce? It's going to reinforce the value of the stability of present moment awareness, the continuity, the clarity, the nimbleness of present moment awareness. Because it's only with that clarity, that breadth and depth of present moment awareness, will I be able to sense whether this way of relating is planting seeds of wholesomeness and release, freedom, or this way of me being in this particular moment is setting emotion suffering. It's way too complex for some guru to tell us this is exactly how you should live your life. 
What we need is this extremely profoundly sensitive heart that can sense how we're relating and what sort of impression, what sort of seeds that way of relating establishes in the heart, mind stream going forward. Oh yeah, I'm becoming, I'm setting emotion, my mind and heart that I don't want to have or be. Or, and, and this is the thing, we actually have a sense that karmic seed, you know, the impression that this karmic act, this intentional act, way of speaking, way of thinking, way of surviving in the world, we're sensing, does it have the flavor of freedom or does it have the flavor of stress and suffering? That's really, uh, that's the first step of being on the spiritual path. It matters. So with that mundane, wise way of relating and paying attention, we start to clarify like what ways of relating seem to be in the direction of release and freedom and healing and what ways of relating seem to be in the way, in the direction of stress. And that's where we get these basic values and <coughs> most religious spiritual traditions talk about the same thing. And I mentioned them in the previous talks in this series, you know, the Buddha identifies in terms of these wholesome intentions, the intention towards generosity and renunciation and contentment, non greed basically, kindness non-aversion, and non-harming or compassion, right? So it's not because we should, it's because through our direct feeling or direct observation of our own heart, our own life, and also we learn from observing others, we see that when this is the frame I'm relating through, kindness, generosity, this valuing of non-harming, things get lighter in my heart and around me. And when I'm relating with the opposites, greed, stinginess, ill will, aversion, fear, and this not caring about harming others, not caring what my actions set in motion for others, that's their problem. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I'm just taking care of my business, and if that causes you harm, so be it, right? When we relate, live our life through those frames, we see, we've observed, this heart, this mind, this life gets heavier. And the reverberations of that heavy heaviness seem to extend to those around me that, for whatever reason, um, are affected by my actions in the world. And so in terms of this path, we have this basic waking up to, I think it might really matter. I don't think the idea I had been using a lot, which is, doesn't really matter. That just doesn't make sense anymore in my mind. So that's such shift in one's view and or in one's wisdom. And then that affects this more operational side of wisdom what intentions do I trust? What intentions do I not trust as much? 
I trust the generous, contented, non-stingy heart. I don't trust greed and stinginess. I don't really think it's going to lead to happiness. Yeah, I could steal that. I could, you know, <laughs> you know, manipulate the situation so I end up with a bigger piece of the pie. You know, like I live with my wife. You know, I, it occurs to me, you know, I'm carrying two plates of dessert. I'm going to put one down in front of her and one down in front of where I'm sitting. You know, how how do I figure out which... Oh, she'd, she'd want me to have the bigger piece, right, or something like that. But it's just really interesting. The question isn't, will I have more cake? The question is, what kind of mind is getting set in motion, and do I want to live in that mind or with that mind, that heart? That's what's actually relevant. The extra bite, or whatever it might be, is a relatively ephemeral sense pleasure. Right, It's not going to make a big difference in the great scheme of things. But reinforcing the tendency to be stingy, reinforcing the delusion that that little bit more cake matters in any meaningful way. Same thing when we cheat a little bit on our taxes or you know, we realize that the cashier didn't charge us for that, but we're already in the parking lot and they're a big corporation. What does it matter? right? The issue isn't whether the corporation deserves that you know, 45 cents of profit. The question is, what kind of heart are we setting in motion? And do we want to live with that heart? If not, then we should go back and say, hey, you forgot to charge me for this. Right? Or whatever. These little tiny, seemingly tiny things are really interesting because it, it's, it's really at this level. So then that really shifts this next section I want to talk about for a couple of weeks. So the wisdom part is the, the more view end of wisdom and then the more operational side of wisdom. So view and then the operational side is what kind of intentions do you trust? What kind of intentions, motivations come out of wise view Versus what kind of intentions, motivations come out of unwise view. So unwise view would be, it's all about me. It's a dog-eat-dog world, that frame. And then the intentions that flow naturally from that view is, it's okay to be stingy, get what you can get, hoard it, don't let anybody take it from you. You know, you can't trust anybody, ill will, and if you have to harm others, your responsibility is to protect yourself. What happens to others don't really matter, doesn't really matter. Right? Those are the intentions. But a wise view is everything does matter. How I relate matters. And ob- observing how it matters, I see naturally, organically. It's not about, oh, I, f- I have the perfect philosophy that tells me what matters. No, I've actually felt, I've actually cultivated the stability and sensitivity of my heart so I can feel what matters and how it matters. So when we conclude that kindness is the way, it's not theoretical, it's not abstract. 
we directly in this very earthy way see when I'm being more kind and relating in that way, we see the effect on our heart. So it doesn't, like, nobody could convince us otherwise. We have our own data. And so when somebody is sort of saying, oh, goody two-shoes, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm not goody two-shoes. I'm just taking care of my life. And it just so happens to take care of everybody's life because that's what I found is the way toward release. We become good because it works. I mean, it sort of sounds selfish, and it's okay to think of it that way. That what's really good for us, my well-being, is good for the collective. How nice is that? But don't believe me. Check it out. Try going after just your own well-being, thinking, assuming that it means you have to take advantage of others and see how that works for you. See what that does to your heart and mind and whether you're becoming a person you want to be or not. So the next section, so that first section generally is called wisdom. And then just in terms of the path, having some wisdom, some clarity that it matters, some clarity about the intentions that are trustworthy, the intentions that aren't, then we bring it into our actions. So we start to say, okay, kindness matters, uh, ill will doesn't, you know, doesn't hel- isn't helpful. Generosity, contentment, suspicion about stinginess versus being stingy, being greedy, being compassionate, really valuing, not causing, not being complicit in harming others, oppressing, taking advantage of others, not, don't think it matters. And anyway, it's a dog-eat-dog word. Of course we're going to cause harm, so why should I even bother? Those spiders shouldn't be in my bedroom. You know, If they didn't want to get harmed by me, what were they doing in my bedroom? And you know, whatever number of other things, like, yeah, it's too bad that there's, you know, children are, being, are working in these factories, and, but I can't afford more expensive clothes, so I don't, I don't really want to hear about it. I don't really have the bandwidth to pay attention to the implications of how I'm shopping. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy the cheapest thing, and, and that's somebody else's business. You know, If they're exploiting their labor over there, that's not my business. And again, it's not about like, um, it's, it's really about like, well, okay, so what does that feel like? That like not wanting to know. What does that feel like? I think a good example of this is around climate change because it is complex, or, I mean, to some degree. Not climate change isn't complex so much as what are we supposed to do about it. That can be a little bit complex. But we want to overuse that because it's complex. Is the, it's not my responsibility. Sure, if there was some big movement, I'd, ju- I'd hop on. we change things, but no leadership. So, gosh, I'm not going to do anything. You know, until other people start to do stuff, I'm going to put my thermostat where I want to put it and buy the kind of car I want to buy or, you know, whatever, shop the way I want to shop, live the way that I want to live, travel, fly. These kind of conveniences that have implications for global warming, climate change, and all the suffering that that sets in motion. So this, you know, in terms of our action now, we know it matters. So then the question is, in these choices, 
now that I'm really learning to value kindness, the motivation of kindness, the motivation of generosity and contentment with what I have, instead of discontentment with what I have, and this valuing of non-harming, then when I'm choosing about my vacation or choosing about what I'm going to buy, those values, like because I'm directly exploring my hypothesis from observing is they actually lead to a resonant happiness, then how do I come up with a vacation in line with the intentions or motivations I trust? Or how do I do shopping with those motivations? How do I have a relationship, you know, an intimate relationship with another human being with those values? How do I participate in my culture with those values of non-harming, values of non-stinginess, non-greed, and the value of, of um, kindness, non-ill will, non-hatred. What does that look like? So the, the next category, the general word is sila, but it, it involves these three areas, overlapping areas, action, speech, which is just a type of action, but a very important one because we do a lot of we create a lot of karma we leave a lot of impressions in our heart by the words we speak and by the words we don't speak so it's not just what we say but those moments where we choose not to say anything also leave an impression in the heart and reverberations in the hearts of those around us and the last one is livelihood how we're earning a living or just how we're interacting with the wider culture or community to get by, right? And so now it's sort of, this is our arena. We bring awareness. And in this awa- with this mindful awareness, we're looking at our actions, what we're actually doing or not doing, our speech, and how we're earning our living or how we're getting by, surviving, in terms of our view and our motivations. So this is like a perfect place to start walking our talk. So from observing the view, you know what, I think it really matters. And I think these motivations are trustworthy and these aren't. And then we start keeping that in mind as we act, as we speak, as we earn our living, find our way, survive we pay attention to it, and we start to clean up. We try slowly, our actions, our speech, and our livelihood start slowly coming in alignment with our wisdom. It matters how I'm speaking. It matters how I'm acting. It matters how I earn my living. And it matters when it's being driven or being governed by kindness, by generosity and and letting go and contentment with what I have and with the value of non-harming. And it matters in a not-so-good way when it's being governed by the opposite, by ill will and hatred and by justifying harm, not my business, and justifying greed. And so we look at our actions, we look at our speech, we look at our our livelihood in that light. And that really stabilizes, uh, you know, gradually over time. We start to, as we 
integrate and strengthen those motivations, those intentions in how we're showing up in our world, engaging our world, then we will receive the benefit. Assuming that our analysis is correct, you know, that kindness is better than ill will in terms of how we navigate our life, that generosity and letting go and contentment is better than stinginess and greed, and non-harming is better than rationalizing or justifying harm, then our life should start to work better. Right? The heart should be lighter. Does it mean that if there's a hurricane, we're not going to be affected or, you know, we get hit by a car? It doesn't, it's not like magical, but just in terms of how this inner space of the mind and heart are, it really starts to affect how life is for us in this kind of inner sense. And then that stabilizes, and we won't get here for another month or so, this third part of the path. Because it's, it's just an engine keeps feeding back in on itself. So wisdom affects action, this general category of action. The more that action becomes uh, comes into harmony with the way it is, so instead of action coming out of selfishness, action coming out of the absence of selfishness, then that stabilizes the heart. That's the third category. It's called samadhi in terms of the Eightfold Path. So we have two here at wisdom, the view and the intentions. We have three here in terms of ethical conduct, sila. We have action, speech, and livelihood. And then the last two, uh, last three parts of the Eightfold Path, the effort to stabilize awareness, the continuity of present moment awareness, and the stability of awareness. Right. So it's these three, it's really taking care of the inner space of the mind, the ecology, you could say, of the mind. So we're developing wisdom, we're walking our talk, we're integrating our wisdom in terms of our more gross part of our life, how we're relating. And then the next place is we're integrating our wisdom in terms of how we take care of our own heart and mind. And that's that bringing wisdom there means we have more samadhi, more clarity and stability of awareness. That will support a deeper understanding of why it matters, how it matters, deeper clarity about the intentions, which will allow us to be in relationship to the whole world, engage the world in a more harmonious way, wiser way, which will allow things to settle down more, more stability of awareness, more samadhi, more clarity, more wisdom, more skillful uh, engagement, more beautiful mind, more wisdom, and that's the engine of awakening. It's got to start somewhere. It matters, clarifying what intentions are helpful, what intentions are not helpful, integrating that understanding, that wisdom into this ordinary realm of, I got to get up in the morning, I got to earn a living, I'm going to have speech, I'm going to interact with other people, I have to make choices. So how can I learn to let that flow from what I've been learning about what intentions are helpful and what intentions are not helpful? And do I directly experience benefit 
from integrating what I've learned around motivations that are trustworthy, motivations that aren't trustworthy. I mean, come on. We learned in kindergarten we should share, right? Anybody, I mean, in, a, in the States at least, I think, it's pretty common in kindergarten curriculum to learn. I taught preschool for a while. Um, isn't it basic that we teach kids to share? Right? So does it actually work to be generous, to be open, to be sharing, to be generous? Right? Does it work? Is it a cause for happiness? We should know that by now. Doesn't mean we're uh, stupid about it, you know, and neglect our own needs. It just means that cultivating that pack rat fear based like is moves us in the direction of suffering. See, the more I think about how the world, just you know, make it general, might take advantage of me, might take what I have the more tight I get. I want a bigger gate. I want a better security system. You know, I want a garage that can't be broken into. I want security around me. You know, it's like, where does that end? So I'm not saying we should neglect sort of the, you know, just like we say at the center, you know, don't leave your wallet in your pocket. Don't leave your backpack in your car in plain sight because it might be taken. But just because we live in a world where things happen doesn't tell us what to do with our mind. Like we can take care of business and lock the front door and operate in life with a generous spirit. And that's like such an interesting thing to play with. And you know, the example we often give because it's a it's just a poignant learning place is when you meet people asking for money like how to handle that in a generous way so you're, we're not cultivating stinginess in that moment. Now, I'm not saying you should give people money who ask for money. I think it's a complicated moment for most of us. And I don't really know what to do, except I know that I don't want to cultivate stinginess in my heart. So it kind of makes me, it sort of inspires a kind of humility in that moment. Like I know I'm a learner. And I'm not pretending to be arrogantly certain about what I should do in that moment. And I'm willing to learn. Like, I try something and I notice what's left over. We had our sutta study group yesterday. It's a group of pretty experienced people in the community. We meet the first Saturday of the month. And uh, one of our longtime community members, somebody who's got a really good practice, was just saying, I mean, it was was just interesting, but that sort of situation happened to them. And they handed the person 20 bucks. And I'm not, I can't remember like what inspired it, but that's just sort of, this person is just trying not to sort of have a fixed idea. And it's really great to experiment. And their line after that, sharing that with us, is, it was the best 20 bucks she spent because of what transpired afterward. And I know, I mean, I, I see in my mind all the kinds of thoughts, oh, this person is going to spend the money this way. Or, you know, oh, I don't want to, Cultivate, you know, I have all these sort of rationalizations. But the, the truth is, I don't really know. I don't know. And, you know, I, for a while I used to say in talking about this, oh, 
you know, what I do is I have a bunch of these cliff bars I leave in my glove compartment, and so I have something to give. But I, I've noticed over the years, because I've been doing it for years, first of all, a lot of people started doing that, at least in this neighborhood. <laughs> people say, those things are so hard on my teeth, because they're begin- getting a lot. And I noticed it was sort of a easy way for me to avoid the uncomfortable situation of just being there with that person. And that's what was really useful, is to, because generosity, showing up in a generous way, can't be programmed. And that's what we want. We want an easy out. We don't actually want to have to be a human being having a human interaction with another human being. Because it's a little scary. Because we don't know what to do with the disparity, like having more than someone else. Or having power over a spider for their life or death. It's like uh, we catch mice sometimes in the basement. You know, and same thing at, at our retreat property. From time to time we have mice in the, at Prairie Farm, our retreat par- property in western Wisconsin. And it's always an interesting question, like the attitude of catching them and then what we do with them. I mean, we never kill them uh, purposefully, but we do remove them from the building. And then it's just interesting, like, where we remove them and just the attitude in the mind. Like, even the attitude, you're such a nuisance, as opposed to, you know, I totally get what you're trying to do. (laughs) It's exactly the same thing I'm trying to do but it can't happen here. Because even though I care about you, my first responsibility is to my own life in this place for other people, right? But I get it, so I don't hate you, but I'm a little afraid of you, but I'm going to notice that and really try not to harm you. You know, And I'm going to try to bring you a place. I don't know how you're going to do there. And that breaks my heart a little. Right, because we don't know what predators are there or whether they can survive in a brand new place. And there's probably other mice there, and you know, animals like humans tend to be tribal, and those mice might not be so well. Oh yeah, come on in. <laughs> we got this great storehouse here. I know you don't share genetic material with me, but no problem. You're one of the gang. Probably not so. I mean, I don't know that much about mice culture, but <laughs> I mean, I, I'm serious that this should, all of this should impact our hearts when we do this activity. So it's not easy to be a human being that cares, that is willingly sensitive to our actions, willingly sensitive to our speech. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's hard to have conversations these days because we're just sensitive. And it's just easy with our words to cause harm, even with our body language. And uh, there's all this sort of, you know, in speech and just generally in our relationships, there's all this power stuff that comes with age, comes with class, comes with gender, comes with race. And... And every interaction, all of that stuff is playing out. Whether we acknowledge it or not, doesn't matter. It's playing it 
itself out. And so it's really easy by ignoring someone or just, you know, how we transition from one conversation to a conversation with another person. And because of all of this history that and culture that we can't avoid being part of, the sort of ways that power has moved and been programmed culturally, we're stepping on a lot of toes and we're being stepped on. And because we're all hurting, that hurt, that pain distorts our sensitivity and makes it even harder for us to be in this realm of action and speech and livelihood. And yet there's no way to avoid it. And you see then why human beings have a strong tendency to want to live with the view, it doesn't matter. It's so messy. It's so convoluted. It just doesn't matter. So I'm just going to do my best to find some pleasantness. And, you know, sorry. That's a lot of how humans get by with that attitude. And we might bring some people into our inner circle. Okay, I care about you. I care about you. But that's about it. And not quite as much as me, but you're still kind of on the inside. And to, to realize that, and to sort of let that circle widen and widen and widen. And we, f- we fear that we'll become dysfunctional. But we actually have to check it out because we might not become dysfunctional. Like we might not lose our capacity to take care of ourselves. I I think things will shift. I'm not saying that, you know, there may not be dramatic changes. But it isn't about not caring about ourselves. We're a human being. We're a living being. We're a creature just like every other creature. So that, that sort of, Um, radiance of compassion and love isn't going to somehow forget ourselves. Oh yeah, I care about myself. But I care about myself in the context of caring about you and you and you. Because not caring is too heavy a burden. And I don't want to lay that down on my heart. Pretending you don't matter, pretending that causing you, you harm doesn't matter is heavy. Why would I consciously do it? I I get that I do it unconsciously because I'm superficial or I'm distracted or... But once I go down this road of becoming more and more sensitive, then I realize I don't want to go back. Like one of my teachers, um, Tony Packer, says, nobody consciously chooses to be numb. Nobody consciously, intentionally chooses to be unaware. As hard as it is to be sensitive and aware, we wouldn't consciously choose to be unconscious, to put our head in the sand. I mean, we do like it when we get to go to sleep, and every once in a while, or maybe more often than we like, we do like it when there's a fun TV show or movie to watch and absorb into or a good book, right? and to disappear for a while in some other drama so we're not sensitive to our own drama for those minutes or hours. But more and more as we practice, we realize, yeah, you can escape, you can drop into deep sleep, you can 
absorb into a book, that more and more our books and our sleep, we start to have this sort of thread. Oh yeah, this thing I'm reading, this movie I'm watching, this dream I'm dreaming in my sleep, it's really about my life and about what's skillful and what's not skillful. Because that frame, that it matters and how it matters and why I'm going to be vigilant about my actions and my how I take care of my mind, it's like it becomes unforgettable. Gradually, very slowly, as we do the practice, we don't value the strategy of disconnection and disassociation and getting lost in thought. We do it because it's the habit of the mind. It's an instinct in the mind. But it stops working. It kind of breaks our heart a little bit that we don't have that go-to place. You know, it doesn't really work. Have you ever caught yourself like not really wanting to be in your life but not can't really justify the work it takes to disappear, you know? And so it's kind of this grudging, okay, I'm going to show up to my life. I'm going to do what this moment seems to be calling me to do. I don't want to. I wish I could escape, but it doesn't make sense. And that's sort of a, a powerful turning point in life where we value doing the next good thing more than procrastinating, putting off doing the next good thing, the next right thing. Now, I'm not saying I'm there yet or I know too many people who are there yet, but I definitely see my life moving in that direction. And, And when I do sort of enter into a period of distraction, I'm more and more aware I'm entering a period of distraction and it's heavy. I'm interested in the cost of trying to disappear, trying to imagine I'm not responsible or pretending that it doesn't matter. Or it does matter, and here I go anyway. Or it does matter, and here I go anyway. Oh. Because we are going to be attached, and we are going to struggle, and we are going to be neurotic. And the first step is just to to say to ourselves, in a sense, do what you're going to do because you're going to do what you're going to do. But let's be let's value being sensitive about whether how that's working for us, what that's setting in motion. So go ahead, do what you're going to do. But let me feel what that sets in motion. It's so interesting how the mind. Oh no 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 no. Mindfulness is good there, but you can't be mindful here. Those are very interesting places. You definitely want a little mindfulness spell to go off, whenever you catch the mind saying to the mind, oh, no, 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 no. No mindfulness here. This is a mindfulness-free zone. And you, and you want a kind of, just a very authentic voice to say, really? Well, that's kind of interesting. Like, what exactly is the fear? Like, you know, it's almost like you're saying, hey, you know, we're all in this together. We both want the same thing, right? We want a life that is profoundly easeful and full and rich and healing and good. So why would we want to be unaware? Like, what's your logic? Somehow that disconnection, unawareness leads somewhere of value? 
explain that to me. Right? That's, that's the kind of conversation we want to have. Now, it's totally understandable that because the mind is delusion has a real coherence. It isn't self. When we're be acting in a not-so-skillful way, it isn't personal. Don't turn that into a you or a me. But it has a real intelligence, delusion does. It's very convincing, like why it doesn't make sense. But we want to, out of compassion, like, no, 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 I really want to understand why being aware, being mindfully aware, being sensitive, would somehow be harmful or like a problem. Anywhere in life. Go drinking with friends. Okay, yeah, but I'm going to really be there. You know, whatever you're going to do, make love, use the bathroom, you know, no, I'm going to be there. This presence, this sort of sensitivity. And it's because otherwise, what happens to the practice is it, be, it turns out it um, somehow gets aligned with the parent, the inner parent. And then it's like we're the rebel trying to avoid the parent. So we always want to be integrating awareness, wisdom and awareness. Like you get to, you know, you can do whatever you're going to do. I Look, at, I already know there's a rebel. I already know there's an infant. I know already know there's a spoiled brat. I already know there's this arrogant one who thinks they know everything. I know all the different personality patterns. So you don't have to hide anything from me. And like I said earlier, just acknowledging to oneself, like, we're, hey, we're all interested in ease, right? Anybody afraid of ease? Anybody afraid of relaxation? Anybody concerned about lightness of heart, that buoyant? joyful quality in the heart? Anybody afraid of navigating life with more skill, creating less disturbances as I find my way through all the choices that need to be made? No, okay. I think I can help. This is awareness. Like Awareness is a good thing. And then, so in the weeks ahead, you know, as we'll spend a couple more weeks talking about... um, this area of action, speech, and livelihood. So as homework, just this non-judging, non-oppressive, non-parental awareness. And find your own way to invite it in. Like, okay, I'm going to be going out with this person who I'm really attracted to. So let me just, I just want to be aware of any kind of manipulative, any kind of greediness, any kind of fear, Operating just sort of like, how's that working? What's that setting in motion? Okay. I just want to see it. just want to feel it. How could that harm? How could that be a problem? Or anything, any place in your life where you tend not to be aware. I've been really trying because it's, uh, I don't know if it's because I was the middle child of seven kids but um, And my parents were sort of stingy around food. They both grew up in large Catholic families on, in the sort of Dust Bowl and the Depression was when they kind of came up when they were kids. And so there's like the stinginess around food. So I notice like when I'm all alone, and I'll be very mindful preparing and get organized and everything's, and then I sit down. 
when I'm by myself, it's like, I'll eat. <laughs> but I, instead of like, oh, no, no, you've got to eat in a mindful way, I'm just inviting in mindful awareness. Okay, this is how it is, you know, just observing, just be honest. So that's what all these areas, these ordinary areas where you're engaging food, you're engaging other people, you're engaging power, you're engaging difference. Just invite in this non-judging, relaxed presence as a friend that can only help. I'm not here to make things worse. I'm not here to condemn anybody. I'm just helping avoid pain and promote healing and ease. I'm your friend. Wisdom awareness is our friend. And especially in these sticky areas of being a human being in relationship with the world. So hopefully we'll have more to share. I didn't leave any time for comments tonight. But there will be a lot of learning. And so hopefully in the weeks, the next couple of weeks, you'll have your own comments to share, bringing awareness into these places. We'll spend a couple more weeks on this area. Sila, integrity, ethical conduct, um, relating to the to the world around us. So let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. Just enough time for a few breaths together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.